This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. It is the third uh, Tuesday in the morning, so the markets are still in full flux. Uh, right now, they're down. Dow's down roughly seventy-one point six two points, or zero point two seven percent. The S and P was up slightly. Um, VIX is down about three point six five percent. This comes after the Friday, which was the largest weekly point drop since two thousand and eight's recession. Um, you know, markets were down triple digits, huge triple digits, a couple thousand point drops uh, last week. Um, you know, Dow was down about 14%, so it was absolute carnage. And then, of course, uh, yesterday, for all you guys were aware, that was the single largest point increase um, since since the correction as well. So there's been no shortage of wild swings. Um, you know, today the G7 met on policy. Uh, I mean, functionally, they've agreed that they're going to stand ready and offer help to fight the coronavirus. But in terms of actual, you know, plan work and, and what they're going to get done, that seems vague. I think that's why initially the markets didn't like the sentiment. Uh, trading's been slightly choppy. Uh, but, you know, there really hasn't been anything out of the G7 meeting other than, you know, they're reaffirming their commitment to use appropriate policy tools. Uh, and, then, and they've been certainly pretty vague. Um, Grant, what's your take on what's 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 happened uh, today, and then I guess over you know since we last met? Well, we saw a lot of volatility last week. I I think that was expected, and and now we're we're seeing a rebound. What what history has shown is when there's been sudden market shocks, that the market usually does make a comeback. We, we saw that yesterday, as you alluded to, with with one of the largest S and P upticks since two thousand eight. Uh, but usually. It, when there has been a sudden shock, as we saw last week, with following declines of more than 10%, that uh, history has shown, other than October 2008, that, that the market has rebound. So if we look at 2001, right after 9-11, there was a 11.6% drop. And then after uh, about half a year, 180 days, we saw a 17.2% increase. Again, then when we saw in uh, 2011, in, uh, in August, we saw a 13% drop, and then again, we saw after 182 days, we, we saw a 20% increase. So I think we, we started to see a little bit of a rebound. I do believe that there this time may be a little bit different because we're seeing that global growth is still weak. We are continuing to see how the coronavirus outbreak is, is going to linger and how that impacts uh, manufacturing and, and growth overall. And then also, if we think where we are today with monetary policy and fiscal easing, uh, I, I don't know if they have the same tools in the toolbox that they, they had previously. So I think that you know buying the dip has been a successful strategy since uh the global financial crisis, but moving forward, we'll uh, we'll have to see. But but I think we're going to continue to see a rebound in the months to come. Yeah. So I mean, when we're excluding the 2008 plunge of 14.6 percent, every sell-off of 10 percent or more um, over you know five trading sessions has ended up with positive returns in um, just you know two weeks after the fall. You mentioned some numbers. Um, you know, you're talking about 2001. Um, 
you know, that was, you know, the impetus of 9-11, uh, 2002, and, you know, the dot-com. And when we look at, you know, 9-11, the S&P gained 10.9% over those two weeks um, after selling off. And this is done by, you know, data from the company uh, Kensho. Um, and then the gains, you know, they, yeah, they ballooned to 12.3%. But when I think we look at a lot of these instances, there was something that happened to contain the the crisis, whether that was, you know, the terrorist attack or, you know, the dot-com bubble or, you know, um, or if we look at, you know, uh, crashes just due to, you know, volatility. Definitely. I, I think that's a great point. And this time might be more risky and, and might be an outlier like 2008, because as you mentioned, 2008 didn't really have a catalyst that stopped it. It was a continued decrease. And so that is the one outlier. And so we may be looking at a time more like 2008, but we, so far, uh, yesterday, Monday, and today, we, we are seeing a, a little bit of a rally compared to the huge sell-off last week. One area everyone's looking to is obviously the Federal Reserve. Uh, the president called on the Federal Reserve to cut uh, rates. Um, he never I mean, does that. Yeah, it was, was, was unique, for sure. Um, I mean, you had, you know, Goldman Sachs economists said Sunday they see the Fed cutting rates by 50 basis points. Uh, by its March meeting or sooner, and maybe up to 100 basis points this year. Um, so the forecast, you know, it's about consensus and, and what we're looking at in market pricing. Uh, what do we think about, you know, lowering their Fed fund rate right now? Well, after the G7 meeting that you mentioned this morning happened, it, it seems that the Fed is already going to cut by 50 basis points before their March meeting. Um, I don't I think this is going to be more symbolic, and it's more of a sign that the Federal Reserve and other central banks are going to be watching the outbreak closely. But considering where interest rates already are, I don't see how uh, how there's much stimulus there, right? I mean, because if if rates are already so low, what's another fifty basis points cut to one to one percent to one point two five percent down fifty basis points? Um, you know, the, it is good to see that the Fed is, is closely watching it and that the G7 leaders are willing to meet to discuss acting together. This is the first time they'll, they'll act in unison since 2008. But I, I think it may be more symbolic, more than a big impact. What, what do you think, Drew? Well, New York Fed President John Williams alluded to the fact that it's better to cut rates dramatically at this point than incrementally because it's so low. So you need something really aggressive to create a shock. I mean, traders in the Fed fund futures market, they're indicating that there's about a 9% probability that the Fed funds rate, uh, which, you know, it's this benchmark for short-term ranges, is going to fall from a range of zero to 25 basis points in December. Um, and, I mean, you know, the Fed funds rate is, you know, has been trading between 1.5 to 1.75. So, you know, that's higher than a lot of our, you know, our bonds and our notes and our, our bills, um, which is, you know, the first time this has happened since 2008. So I think. And it's the biggest. Yeah, yeah. So it's the it's the biggest cut since 2008, which is, I think, really symbolic. As you said, uh, it was also interesting to see that J.P. Morgan Chase, Chase Economics, excuse me, uh, said that the, the they could even see the Fed go to zero by the end of the summer if, if these conditions uh, continue. So I think that that's would be a, a, a big drastic change as well. What we're fundamentally worried is that this could be a virus-led recession. So, I mean, that's why 
the Fed's going to have to use its most traditional tool in its tool book. But, you know, Ed Hyman, who's a very followed economist on Wall Street, you know, was talking about how the coronavirus could end up causing a recession in the U.S. He had a particularly dismal forecast, even more so than Goldman Sachs. Uh, he indicated that U.S. GDP forecast would only grow, would have 0% growth um, in its in its you know initial quarter. So, uh, I mean, what we're seeing is, you know, such a fall in GDP would obviously um, – affect affect markets um you know we really don't know what's going to happen in terms of as he said scope severity or duration all those factors are very uncertain right now so it's going to be you know just a waiting game to see how this entire thing plays out exactly well how many episodes now have we been on the podcast been been talking about the coronavirus and we still don't have definitive answers so i i think uh, Hyman is definitely right, and one of the big questions he asks is, how is this going to change behavior in the U.S. Uh, in, the, in the next quarter? Uh, and so a, a fall in GDP in two consecutive quarters defines typically defines a recession. And so if we think about uh, slowed growth in Q2, and then if it's really just hitting the U.S. economy now, we're, we're seeing a couple deaths in, in Seattle. New York is confirming more cases as well as California. So therefore, if we're, if we're thinking about this now, just beginning to, to hit the U.S., this this could have an impact for, for growth moving forward. Uh, so o- only time will tell. Yeah, we don't know really what's going to happen in the states. I saw as of Sunday, we had about 70 cases but if we look at what's happened to China, which is, you know, the origin of this whole thing, it's been entirely gutted. Their PMIs fell to 35.7 in February. That's an from, all-time low, right? Yeah, down from 50 in January. So, um, you know, Hyman, you know, expects GDP to rebound to about 2% in the fourth quarter. Maybe th- we get 3% in 2021. But that's assuming we put this thing under control, whether that's, you know, we effectively quarantine it and s- slow down the spread or, you know, where there's medical technology to, um, you know, there's vaccines and, and, and things like that. Um, but right now, it's just it's just kind of a free for all. So, I mean, if we get to the point of China where our PMIs, you know, drop well, well sub fifty, um, you know, then that's a problem that lingers longer than a couple months. Um, you know, you got you have to change a lot of fundamentals about your economy. I mean, and we we've seen PMIs right now fall uh, slightly. I mean, they fell to fifty point one in February from um, fifty point nine in January. Um, so, I mean, as we talked about, you know, PMIs were sub 50 for a few months. They got back over 50, but I think it's very possible that we uh, return to contraction in our manufacturing sector as, you know, growth slows and as supply lines are really shot. I would I would agree with that. I think we're going to really begin to see a, a contraction as a lot of the global supply chain coming from China and uh, it, it begins to impact the globally uh, the global supply chain. So I, I, I think next time we, we talk about the PMI, we're going to be into the 40s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think could be a benefit to this uh, entire ordeal is that we see, you know, a shift in supply lines. I mean, I mean, Europe, you know, the United States and Japan have been worried about this for a while. Uh, a lot of people don't really care all that much until a crisis like this happens. But when we look at, um, you know, a lot of pharmaceuticals, uh, Inner Mongolia, you know, is a huge leader in a lot of pharmaceuticals. And, um, you know, when we have 
issues uh, break out in the area that creates, uh, you know, a lot of this medicine, you really have to think about ways to diversify, um, you know, manufacturing and, and around the world. If you're a foreign government or, or a CEO, you're, you're not going to forget this this lesson because uh, if most of your vital products and your key uh, key components of, of manufacturing all dependent on one country, if, if something happens or, or they decide to shut it off, that's going to be drastic for your business or, or for your country. Uh, so I think you know if we think about the trade tensions and rising labor costs and now the virus, companies are going to have to realize they need to diversify. And, and I think that we're going to see uh, a diver- diversification in certain sectors and that they're going to be hedging their bets on a trend that not to put all their eggs in one basket. And we're going to see Western countries and, and American countries start to decouple from China. Yeah, we had so we had Peter Navarro who um, went on, you know, Fox Business and then it was more or less a I told you so moment. Uh, he was talking about how we got to bring stuff back on shore. Um, he's certainly not the most popular person globally when it comes to trade agreements, but it's not a sentiment that is widely different from what people have, you know, in capitals across the world when it comes to China. Well, I, I, I don't think everyone's going to just leave China and just all of a sudden pack up their bags and leave. I, I just think they may not have uh, such a big, drastic uh, you know, presence there and, and may start to look for other countries and still be able to drive global growth through in many sectors. Yep. Yep. And then, I mean, let, let's talk about, uh, you know, an issue that we have we haven't really discussed much recently, which is um, you know Fannie and Freddie. Um, you know they've been required to you know send the bulk of their profits to the government um, after you know the failure of two eight, and when they got a hundred ninety one billion dollar bailout. Um, you know investors and in mortgage securities could be worried about the government stepping away from Fannie and Freddie. Um, you know when there's you know not much of insurance of. Who's going to back bonds if such a similar crisis happens? Uh, I mean, l- l- let's talk about these, uh, you know, government agencies and, and the, the role they play in, in our debt right now. Well, they still continue to pay play a huge, uh, huge place in the mortgage-backed security and, and home loans. So they're, they're really Fannie and Freddie help make possible buying homes by packaging them and, and then selling mortgages on the bond market. Uh, so one thing that we've seen since 2008, as you said, is that uh, based on a lot of the profits or all of the profits are going towards the, the Treasury Department's based on the 2008 bailout agreement that they had. Uh, but, you know, billions of dollars are or five trillion dollars in the mortgage bonds could hinge on the decision in the, in the coming weeks. Um, and then also it could impact affordable 30 year mortgage rates. So it, it is big if we see uh, Fannie and Freddie begin to exit U.S. control and, and really look to hedge funds and other private investments uh, for to really start to growth for the for the public stock offering. Yeah, I mean, one of the things they've done is they've took a fundamental step by, you know, raising the amount of profits companies can keep before sending the rest to the Treasury Department. Um, and, you know, next year there might be some more substantial uh, bailout terms, you know, um, put together. But it is 
it you know it it is an interesting thing um you know there's groups such as like the securities industry and the financial markets association are trying to convince the trump administration that you know releasing fannie and freddie uh without a fundamental guarantee of the bonds you know would make investors worry about uh buying them so so i mean there's just there's just a lot going on in this regard well if he's he's signaling by may or june uh, that they may be ready to exit U.S. control and seek an infusion of cash. This, uh, this may be really impactful because uh, that really accounts for 15% of the U.S. economy and if we think about mortgages and mortgage-backed securities, and that if Fannie and Freddie have to retain more capital, they may have to buy fewer loans, and then they may not back as riskier ones, which, which could impact and raise overall mortgage rates. So that, that's something to watch out as we follow this moving forward. Another news uh, article that was out last week was uh, talking about, you know, the billionaire investor Leo uh, Leon Cooperman. Um, he was thinking about reinstating the old um, uptick rule. Uh, Grant, kind of, let's talk about the uptick rule. What is it and, um, you know, why would that have such an effect right now? Right. So the, the uptick rule really applies to, to shorting a stock um, or, or a security. So let's take a, an example. If a stock trades for $1 and then it rises to $1.02 in uh, the following tick, then an investor could short it. However, if a stock trades at one and then falls to 99 cents on the next tick, then a trader cannot short it at that moment. So if, if the if the stock is beginning to trade down, it, it restricts short sellers uh, from putting additional pressure on a security that is already starting to decrease. So if we think about big slides, uh, that may be a, a way to not have such drastic drops. Uh, we saw Cooperman signal that it really uh, removing the rule in 2007 have, has helped quantitative trading systems, and they're able to quickly see a down trending stock and be able to bet against it. And so that's why we're seeing more drastic swings. Uh, and so he, he's saying that if he were to think about an uptick rule or cutting the rate, he thinks an uptick rule will, will help stabilize the market more than cutting the fund, fund rate. Yeah. I, there's a lot of people who think it's archaic. And uh, I mean, we even look at the SEC allowed Wall Street to lower costs for investors and uh, increase liquidity and in trading even during the height of the crisis. So. Well, it was yeah, it was implemented from 1938 and then was eliminated in 2007. Uh, a big push was because electronic trading began to to take over Wall Street, really, and, and the really the quantitative trading systems were able to really take advantage of the of these arbitrage opportunities. So that's one of the main reasons we we saw the rule go. And since if we think about the tools that that the SEC and, and the Fed can use is since rates that we already talked about earlier on the podcast today is that rates are already so low that maybe this uptick rule may be able to have a bigger impact. The dollar started to slip um, to a one month low against the basket of a bunch of currencies on Monday. Um, you know. Uh, investors, you know, are ultimately betting on the U.S. Federal Reserve to ease, pol uh, to ease policy um, in order to contain the virus. Uh, so when we look at the dollar index, um, you know, it was 0.7% lower uh, at 97.45, um, and that was after it had slipped to a one-month low of uh, 97.28. So just, you know, goes to show that in times of upheaval, you know, the dollars kind of the standard bearer and, and it, it's prone to slip a little bit 
And we also saw the, the yen against the dollar. Uh, the yen usually draws investors during times of financial stress. Uh, so we, we saw that the yen was up against the dollar by 0.5%. Uh, so we're just continuing to see if the how the dollar stabilizes moving forward because I think we'll enter into a contractions phase on the dollar. Yeah, I mean, you know, Joe, Joe Mimibo, who's a senior market analyst at, you know, the Western Union Business Solutions, I think, kind of stated as much, you know, quoting that the U.S. dollar continued to bleed strength as the spreading coronavirus heightened expectations for shock and awe caliber interest rates uh, cuts by America's central bank. So, um, you know, when we're looking at, you know, tepid manufacturing activity, uh, when we're looking at an impending uh, rate cut, uh, you know, this is just you know some of the, some of the things we can we we can see as a result. Um, that I think we should kind of get into you know what to expect uh, you know upcoming weeks uh, in in light of everything. Uh, I mean, and one thing we 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 haven't uh, really discussed is there's really been a uh, re re fundamental shift in the Democratic Party. I mean, you had uh, Pete. Buttigieg drop out. You had Amy Klobuchar drop out. They both endorsed Joe Biden. So his odds of coming into a strong Super Tuesday look a lot better after a strong performance in the South Carolina primary. Uh, and I imagine if Bloomberg doesn't give any traction, uh, he's going to be really strong-armed to drop as well. Yeah, I think I think he'll have to drop. We saw that also Berto O'Rourke was on the campaign trail with with Biden yesterday in Texas, which I think if I think Bernie has a very strong lead in, in California, which will be the big prize with the most delegates of Super Tuesday. But if Biden can can really win win Texas, I think he's still in the race. Now that we saw Klobuchar and Buttigieg drop out, I think you're absolutely right. If if Bloomberg does not have a, a strong showing, I think he'll he'll have to drop out, and then we'll we'll be in a two horse race between Biden and, and Bernie. It, one of the big things is, is that a lot of some of the states have already had a, a lot of the early ballots in, and I, I wonder what will happen if a lot of them have Buttigieg or Klobuchar on those. Um, so that may still have an impact on on Biden. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a couple states that are fundamentally altered, Minnesota being one of them. I mean, Klobuchar was the favorite. Um, so we'll see if she's still on the ballot, and depending on how much you know early voting goes into it. But, you know, she, she could have already racked quite— forty percent in some states. Right. You already could have racked up quite a bit of votes. So that'll be something to see. I mean, the likelihood of Biden securing the nomination has gone up, uh, as has uh, when we talk about the uh, likelihood of there being it going to uncontested in Milwaukee uh, come this summer. So, I mean, if that's the case, then, I mean, prior delegates aren't, you know, they can go to another candidate. But um, it's really going to be a matter of who is able to create somewhat of a commanding lead, you know, coming into the coming months. So, uh, anything else you're thinking? Well, I thought it was interesting today. We saw that Google now, uh, or I guess it was, uh, WAMO had, uh, accepted some outside funding. And this is one of the first times that we've saw an alphabet company not get, uh, all their funding from the parent company. And so uh, we'll continue to see if, if that's a trend with, with Alphabet subsidiaries uh, moving forward. And then I, I think we're continuing to watch to see how the, how the outbreak continues uh, to, to affect the United States. Uh, so for all listeners out there, remember to wash your hands and uh, avoid all coughing and, and sneezing people.
Yeah, I'm going to be curious to see, you know, what people do in terms of travel restrictions, whether that's, uh, you know, study abroad programs and just, you know, general vacation hotspots as well have been, you know, severely curtailed. So uh, that's that might be a method of the quarantine that leads to a lot less uh, freedom of mobility than we've seen in years. So it's going to be curious to watch that, how it plays out in terms of a policy level, but also what, if any, drawback there is as people are accustomed to traveling more than they ever have been, right? So, Why, and the effect that it has on hotel companies as well as airlines, it's going to have a drastic impact on all those. Uh, I, I have heard that a lot of the U.S. Uh, exchange programs in, in Rome and other places in, uh, in Europe are, are starting to bring their students home. So I think we're going to continue to see that. I mean, I mean, that's all I got. And with that, um, you know, like and subscribe. We'll talk to you guys next week, and, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.